Welcome to Shorts, Season 1. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today, we're reading The Great Indian Tea and Snakes by Kritika Pandi. It was the winner of the 2020 Commonwealth Short Story Prize. You can read this story at granta.com. We've linked the story in the show notes, so please read it through before listening. The Great Indian Tea and Snakes tells a story of a Hindi girl who works at her father's tea shack in India. She meets a Muslim boy at the shack and falls for him. She has to hide her feelings. As their relationship is developing, He's attacked and murdered in front of her at the tea shack. So Lizzie, what did you think? Jen, I think this story from the beginning becomes about the perspective and the details that both the main character and the author revealed to us. That was what lingered with me after reading it the first, second, and third time was these bits of visual cues that tell us about the real dynamic of what's happening in this story. Uh, and I found that really fascinating. It it made me research more about this character and the world she was living in and the political situation in India. And I love a story that pushes my curiosity. What about you? I think actually for me, I had quite a different experience. Um, from my side, the, what stayed with me was this voice of the girl and this kind of... Um, perspective that she gave us on her world it really felt like we were looking through her um through her eyes so everything we saw everything we felt everything that happened was described from her perspective and um it was you know you were held so close to her and as these kind of very sort of small details played out but then these extraordinarily difficult, huge um, uh, plot moments played out. She kind of held our hand through it and we were looking through her eyes. And I I found that really, um, really interesting. Yeah. And what you're saying about her perspective also contained the story. We never saw anything beyond what she saw. We didn't know anything beyond what she knew, uh, which seemed like a very explicit choice by the author. Yeah, I agree. I and I I love that because I think it was really placing us into this world which felt really small. You know, she's in a way the whole story is contained around this this tea shack and there's a couple of moments where she breaks out but you really get a sense of how small this world is for her. Um and the level of detail that's that is used to describe that world, the kind of intricacy of it. Um really brought it to life in a way that I could really visualize as I was reading the story. So let's jump in to the story. And right off the bat, we see symbols and we see details of the girl's perspective that tell us that there's a lot more going on here than just a few people drinking tea. So the first sentence, the girl with the black bindi knows that she's not supposed to glance at the boy in the white skull cap, but she does. So we've got tension. We've got the details because the black bindi uh, means that she's an 
unmarried Hindu girl and the white skull cap denotes uh, that the boy is Muslim. And automatically we have the tension of those two types of people, those two religions don't go together. But she never references that. She never references the real religions. She references the signs, the details, the physical aspects of it. Yeah. And I mean, that's just one sentence, but like, think about how much that gives us. Because not only do we have, immediately we know that this is a story told from her. Immediately we see this, this difference articulated, you know, through, you know, as you say, not through the words, but through these descriptions um, and through these markers, these symbols. But we also get the humanity. She's not supposed to glance at the boy, but she does. And so there's a kind of innocent, relatable um, sort of longing that comes from from that. And I like I was in. I mean, with a short story, you know, if you don't get it in the first part, if you're not into it in the first paragraph, you're not going to keep reading. Um, and I was like, the first line, I was like, what is happening? This love story is about to kind of unfold. Does he notice her? What about their religious differences? How are we going to feel about that? I was completely taken in by that first line. Um, and that's so clever to be so, to give us so much richness in the first sentence. Yeah, classic. Romeo and Juliet. In my head, I have that Taylor Swift song. Romeo, save me. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely not going to regret singing that into my microphone. But here we are. <laughs> so, so we have this sentence of the two of them. We know what's going on, the tension. And then we get the other detail of the Kima Samosas. So at the great Indian tea and snakes, this is the name of the tea shop where that her father's built. And, and uh, they talk later about how it was supposed to say the great Indian tea and snacks, but the person who wrote it misspelled it. And I just love that title. I don't know why I love that title so much, but I just think it is adorable. Also, it tells us again, it tells us something about where we are. I mean, I think that's what's so smart about it. I mean, I didn't sort of get it when I first read the title. And after I read the story, I sort of reconnected with the fact that it's like, okay, so this is a, um, a tea, this is the name of the tea shack. It's written in English. It's not written in Hindi or English or any other of the kind of dozens of languages um, that we would find in India. It's It's written in English in this kind of, um, in the in the in a way that tells us something, I think about the father that it's kind of aspirational, but he's not had um, a set of the access to the education that he um, uh, that maybe every you know that everybody should have access to. Um, and we hear that little story about the sign writer saying, you know, everyone's going to love this. Uh, seeing this name and we hear that there are two different perspectives there are people who love the name and there's people who see the sign of the Shack and they're laughing at it and it's because there's this sort of in joke and this class differential that we get from people who've had that access to the education and so they can look down on this misspelled um uh shop uh sign and then you have people who are like wow this is a really um forward-thinking establishment with this with this English um, written name. And so again, it's like, how much has she pushed into this one sign and this, the title of the story? It's, again, it's a, it's a very interesting way of telling us so much in so few words. Absolutely. In just the perspective of our protagonist, whose name we never know. You know, we yeah. never know anyone's name. 
Uh, so here they are at the Great Indian Tea and Snakes, and we know that um, our protagonist, the girl, is makes samosas. She serves chai a lot to day laborers, but also to this boy in the white skull cap. And he is different, not only because of his skull cap, but because he eats kima samosas um, compared to alu samosas. And kima samosas are meat, uh, meat-filled samosas, and uh, alu are potatoes for the vegetarians, uh, the Hindus. And she says their stuffings are somewhat different, but the girl makes both type of samosas with the exact same batter. They are the same unless one absolutely wants to differentiate, which most people do, including the girl's father, who has strictly warned her against eating kima samosas. Hmm. Again, I love samosas. I mean, first of all, <laughs> first uh, of all, delicious. let's take let's take a moment for samosas. So good. So mm. good. Um, and you know, I love that we get this sense that, you know, there's these people are coming every day. This is kind of a ritual. They come for their tea and their samosas having that difference. You know, they it's, it's, it's spelled out for us, right? They look the same on the outside. They are the same, but inside there's this kind of crucial difference. And, you know, she says the father, her father has strictly warned her against eating the kima samosas. We understand immediately the stakes involved. Yeah, because at first, when we hear about kima samosas, we know they're different. We know that her father warns her against eating them, but the tension isn't ratcheted up yet. We don't understand the level to which the representation of the skullcap and the kima samosas end up becoming, in many ways, what kills this boy. And then later in the story, she talks about how like, the violence gets turned up a notch when her father gets angry when she serves the boy with a ceramic mug. Um, he says, steel can be washed with soap and water, but you can't wash a kima eater's saliva off of clay. So he's no longer a boy, right? He's a kima eater. And he says, the girl used to father, follow her father's orders and throw away the ceramic pieces, but now she collects them as if they're artifacts. Well, while her father is snoring at night, she steps out of the house, glues back the broken cups under the streetlight and hides them among the tangled roots of the banyan tree. Yeah. And it's really shocking. The, the kind of the moment that you talk about where he smashes the cup is like it, it really interrupts this almost kind of it's almost dreamlike the way that she's taken us through the story from this point, because we're just observing, we're observing this boy that she really likes. We're observing the kind of day laborers we've understood, you know, we get this sense of this routine and then suddenly we get this kind of act of violence, which is absolutely, as you say, it's because this boy's a Muslim. It couldn't be, couldn't be clearer that, that, um, the, the regard that the father holds. And this violent discrimination that we see is just, it's really shocking. And then we see her tenderness. And again, you know, we've got this, this perspective of her as a, as kind of the next generation, not seeing the difference, not understanding why this would be something that would need to be violent. And she kind of tends to the broken pieces of the crockery as she, as you would tend to someone who's kind of, you know, as you would tend to a person that she sort of, binds them back together and she she buries them and you know a she's hiding them but b she's kind of giving it almost giving him almost these kind of funeral rites with the for the cup and really kind of there's a real sort of innocence and tenderness of that act which is healing I think from the from that shock of the violence from her father mm -hmm. I just I wonder when I read this story how she hasn't 
collected these beliefs that are all around her? You know, why, why, how is she able to see past the discrimination that she's literally being fed by the day laborers, by um, her father? And then as we'll touch on in a minute by the government, uh, she doesn't seem, she really seems to be curious enough about the world and curious enough in this sweet boy to not, not internalize that. And I wonder why that is. Do you have any thoughts? What I understood from that moment was was not that she had sort of intellectually grappled with it, but more that just as a sort of through this, through almost a kind of innocence of the world, she was able to see people just as they were. As we start to move through the story, and like you said, it goes from this kind of dream life, like Romeo and Juliet state, we start to see the almost the really Orwellian figure of the government and their impact on like the government's impact, this huge, this huge organization on this, these two young people's interaction and says the new prime minister's faces everywhere on telephone poles and park benches and garbage cans in the back of cars and even on the faces of so many people who wear masks of his face with tiny holes for their eyes. Woo! And of course here, she's talking about Narendra Modi, who's the current prime minister of India. And we know that well, I've done some research and Modi is part of this party um, called the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is a Hindu national party. Um, they're right wing, um, historically Hindu nationalists. And here's this. This is interesting, Jen. And I thought that this went back to the Orwellian idea of his face being everywhere, is that as of 2019, it's the country's largest political party in terms of representation in the national parliament. And it's by far the world's largest party in terms of primary membership, with the second largest party, the Chinese Communist Party, having about half the registered members of the BJP. So just think about that. They have the most primary membership of any political party in the world because India is this vast nation, but it's a Hindu nationalist party. And we know that many of Modi's uh, policies target the systematic shutdown and marginalization and, in a few times, murder of Muslims in India. And so you start to understand, like, oh, this is, while this is a story about this girl and love, it is also a story about government and the role of of nationalism and discrimination to control people and push an agenda forward. Uh, I don't know. I got really kind of into it and I was like Googling everything. And (laughs) this is how I, I just, I thought that this was a really interesting thing that the author does in creating a story that is so small of just her perspective at the tea shop, but also including a really very forceful message about the current government. And I heard an interview with the author and she said that when she was little, she lived close to 
a mosque and she heard the call to prayer. And when she asked her mom what the call to prayer was, her mom said that that is um, God reminding you um, that he's that he's here. And so there was this sense when uh, Pandey was little that there that you know there that God was God and that religion was religion. And she you know she was like there was never a sense when I was small that that these were kind of two competing factions. You know we were all kind of experiencing. Um, our god or gods in in a different way but but that it was a kind of united feeling and i thought that was really fascinating thinking about what the shift has been therefore that pandy has seen she's she's um she's quite young this author but she was kind of saying you know in the 20 years um how different things have become um and on a kind of you know on a national level and that is an agenda that's that's been set by Modi and the and the ruling party, as you say, mm-hmm. it's interesting, right? How this very, very local story becomes global, can instantly become global, um, yeah. especially because how with the introduction of the prime minister here, she she also ends up tying us forward in the story to the boys, the group who come wearing the saffron colored scarves that Pandi is sharing with us, uh, with the prime minister. And then that introduces us to later in the story, the introduction of the killers of the boy. And saffron is of course the color of Modi's ruling party, uh, the BJP. And that horrible scene. That scene, I mean, I think it's important that we obviously touch on it, but I think you know, again, the sort of broader symbolism and the broader story of it is just brought out by these tiny details. So the first time I read it, I didn't clock the saffron bandanas and I didn't really make that connection or kind of understand what was really behind the attack, um, except for obviously understanding that it was to do with the fact that this um, boy is a Muslim. Um, And I think it's because, again, she moves us from the kind of um, macro to the micro very, very quickly. So she mentions the saffron bandanas. She mentions it, um, a couple of times, but then we are very much kind of back in her, you know, she's just observing and we're seeing this thing play out again, sort of directly through her eyes. And she talks, you know, very she's just observing it take place and so what we understand and what we experience is her trauma of seeing this boy that she loves being beaten but what she's describing is this horrendous kind of language of discrimination difference and violence and those two things coming together and her kind of innocent perspective watching and uh, and hearing and witnessing and being witness to that language and that violent attack they kind of smash up against each other in that scene um in a way that was very difficult to read but gave a very kind of broad picture of the effect of um what's happening on a national political level and what's happening on a kind of very local personal um human level Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the sinister feeling of when these boys arrive with the saffron bandanas and like more of them continue to arrive. And the father is not happy to see them because they don't pay. 
and they're ordering everyone around. And you see how they use these small details about kima samosas, chai, traditional things like chai as like an only Hindu drink. I mean, it was really interesting. It, it ratchets up and then, and then they ask him to take off his skull cap and then the beating begins. And then the day laborers jump in and start beating him up too. What did you think of that? What did you make of that, Jen? I think what's really interesting is we get this sense of cover from these kind of outside um, instigators of the violence. So we see as this plays out, some of the day laborers just join into the violence and some of the most kind of heinous descriptions come from what the laborers do. Um, But we also get this moment where the girl's father and some other of the laborers, they try and intervene. And we know that all of those people, all of them have been against this boy and have shown, uh, kind of shown him discrimination and have been kind of verbally abusive or kind of uh, disgusted by by him being there and we've seen that in a very violent and visceral way but when it actually comes to him being attacked we see kind of we see a division so we see some people kind of seeing the cover being whipped up into the violence and saying yes they agree with me um they're just like I am and I want to get this boy and we see others who are still kind of we know don't like the boy and feel very kind of um you know, feel his difference, intervening to protect him. And I think, you know, in 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 this kind of polarized political um, situation, that can just happen on a knife edge. We've only seen like one homogenized group of the of the laborers kind of giving him attitude and giving him stick and kind of calling him names. Um, and we see that violent eruption from his fa- from the father where he kind of smashes the cup and he talks about um, the, the boy being kind of dirty. But as we get to the actual violence, some people are some people are are whipped up into it and feel like they're justified. And some people kind of take on this, um, you know, can't can't stomach the inhumanity and the and the violence of it and 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 try to intervene. And I think. I think it's extraordinary that that we are pl- we, that we see this splintering of the group, um, and that we can sort of feel a humanity towards these people who have been, you know, up to now, uh, you know, as we've been saying, one group of people who are being discriminate discriminatory towards the boy, trying to save him. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it's just so complicated. Like how, and I, I love that about this story that she doesn't give us full. I mean, she does give us mob violence, but it's not cut and dry. No. It's not everybody. There is, there are people trying to intervene, but unsuccessfully. And so the boy dies. And I have to say this sentence where the boy dies, like kicked me in the stomach. I had to read it like three times to understand that he died. And I just felt like, no, no. And it, the sentence is, the boy looks like a punctured tomato and dies. So then we get to the end of the story and where she is kind of dazed and grief stricken and she's still painting henna on, on bride's hands. And 
I just wanted to add this one sentence that I think calls back to this continued government support of, you know, these discriminatory actions, which is there's a nationwide ban on chema samosas, chema non, chema parathas, chema pakoras, and basically chema everything. Just right there in the middle of a paragraph. And I researched this and saw that Modi's government has, in fact, been shutting down many uh, meat slaughtering, like slaughterhouses that are run by Muslims, which effectively takes people out of work and are unable to pay their bills and thrust them into poverty. But there's just that in the middle of this young girl's grief, grief ridden winter. And I think the description of, of her grief just tells us so much about um, about her experience and about her love and also about her kind of complete sort of struggle as, as, as a very isolated female in this community. So, you know, we see, and we've seen this all the way through the story, um, you know, she's the only girl that we that we know about. There's nobody else. No, no women are coming to the tea shack that we know about. The only other women that we see are kind of brides who she is doing the henna for. So she's doing the kind of intricate henna um, art um, for for them and painting their hands and kind of painting the the name of their husband to be um, sort of within the henna. So we get this kind of very strange um, story of her as a kind of is at the center of this world and all around her are these men and then kind of one step out are these women who are who only exist for her as brides uh, brides to be brides to be who's who's some of them don't even know their husband's name like one of them can't remember her husband's name um some of them don't seem to like their husband some of them are very kind of excited about their their husband but you know they're very much women who are only portrayed in a way kind of through this lens of like they're about to get married and the only other woman that we kind of encounter is Beyonce who she kind of finds <laughs> she finds these magazines and she cuts it she's like who is this woman and it's Beyonce and she kind of cuts out those pictures and has this kind of aspirational figure of of Beyonce um, the girl's mother is hardly mentioned at all. There's a kind of, we understand that she died, the mother died because of um, giving birth to the girl. Um, and she, you know, that's sort of mentioned and then not mentioned again. Um, and I think this experience, of, like, so she's a kind of, she's this, this girl who just exists in a bubble and she's trying to process all this stuff. She's trying to process her feelings. She's trying to process um, like how she feels about the boy. She's trying to understand there's a one point where she talks about kind of, is this what it's like to feel like a woman? And she's, she's trying to kind of go through all of this. She's going through it completely on her own. And we just get this sense of like complete isolation for this one beautiful girl in the middle of the story. I don't know what you thought about her. Oh, I just have so much affection for this, this girl. Yeah. Like, and you know, this idea that her, her two examples of womanhood are women about to get married and Beyonce. I mean, as someone who literally only listened to the lemonade album for like all of 2016 to being hypnotized by her, but, but I mean, you don't see her having conversations with other women 
to understand like what her future may hold or what her options are. Like the other, the only other mention of women that I think you didn't talk about was um, this woman who in grade 10 or this girl in grade 10, who goes off and elopes with um, oh, a yeah. boy from school. It's like, yes. the, you know, that's the thing is like, there's this extraordinary passage as well that I that I just want to read. I think it really relates to this and and this sense of kind of isolation. She says, um, so this is before the boy is killed. Um, she air dries her shampooed hair in the afternoon sun instead of twisting it up in a towel. She wonders if this is how girls become women. One night when she is putting a broken cup back together, soiled with the Kima eater's saliva, Blood gushes out of her finger like water from the pump. Nevertheless, unlike the brides whose hands she paints with henna, she feels no need for a husband and a house and a washing machine and a baby and a mixer grinder to be content. All she needs is for the boy in the white skull cap to drink chai and eat samosas at the stall so she can watch him watch her. Isn't that just, just extraordinary? Ugh. Like, I, you know, she's she has this moment where she's sort of air drying her hair and she feels kind of all woman. And then we get <laughs> an image of her, you know, she cuts her finger on the cup that, that he um, drank from and then blood is gushing. And I think, you know, we don't need to, we don't all need yeah. to be women to kind of understand <laughs> of like, uh, you know, a girl kind of becoming a woman and, uh, you know, in inverted commas and <laughs> that being an important, important symbol for, uh, for a kind of, for a teenage girl. Um, and then, you know, this sense that like, again, like how did she get this perspective? Like she doesn't need a husband. She doesn't need a house. She doesn't need a washing machine. She doesn't need these, these, and she kind of directly, takes herself away and sort of says, unlike the bri those brides whose hands she paints. Um, and she just, she just wants the boy that she likes to, to see her and notice her. And it's just, it's just like, it's lovely. It's, it's feels kind of like there's something blossoming with her with this first love and this rush that she gets from the boy. And it's kind of, it's independent and it's, and it's powerful and it's strong and it's feminine. And I, I kind of, we get all of that from her and I, you know, she hasn't had, we can't tell where this role model is coming, is coming from or what, how she's kind of got it. And I love the fact it feels like it's kind of birthing from within her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just imagine this scene, like, like dappled sunlight and her like <laughs> looking up at the sky. And like, I just remember being 17 and in love and being like, ah, here I am, you know, like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is it. You know? And it's just this universal feeling and, Oh, it's just so sweet. And, and I think, and I love the fact that it, cause it does feel sweet. And I think what we sort of forget, you know, because in one way, this feels really universal, but in another way, you know, we're in such a different culture and society from the one that I grew up in and the one that you grew up in, kind of in the UK and in the US. You know, there's a moment where she sort of has a pang of jealousy about this boy and about him, you know, wondering if if he may have a girlfriend at school and asking if he's held her hand. And you kind of realize that, you know, so much of this, you know, she has to hide the fact that she likes this boy from everybody around her. And part of that's because, um, 
of their difference in religion, but part of it's also because of what women kind of can and can't do and be um, in some of these communities um, in India. And I think, you know, we're, we understand through these the, the brides just how sort of sensitive relationships and, you know, marriage is. And this perspective of the, of the girl, you know, all she wants is to be able to watch this boy watch her. She's not dreaming about kissing him or holding his hand. You know, we just get this sense of real you know, there's a sort of innocence to it, but there's also a real kind of, she's not able to express this across the board, not not in terms of their religious difference, not in terms of her being a woman, not in terms of the community that they're in. Um, and it's it's just, it's multi-layered and, I, and I, I love the complexity of it, sort of dressed up in an innocent, simple story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we that makes me think of, we have this innocent scene before the boy is killed and then after the boy is killed, she she leaves the tea shop. She's like kind of roaming around and imagining if she could fall in love with these other boys. Then after the boy is killed, she leaves the shack and she's wandering around and she sees some flowers at, at a park. And she, she asks a security guard if these are geraniums. And he says, what are you talking about? And she said, are these geranium flowers? And he says, there are no flowers by that name. She walks up to another man who's watering potted yellow flowers with long spaced out petals and repeats the question. No, he says, but nice tits. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ugh. it's yeah, you kind of this sense of kind of her womanhood compared to the versions of it that she sees or the attitude to it that she sees around her are starkly different. Um, and I think one thing that we get from um, uh, from the author, from Pandi, is that, you know, is, is kind of these grappling perspectives. I mean, she is, um, she's an Indian woman, um, but she uh, kind of by her own admission, you know, wasn't writing with this perspective. She had um, sort of significant opportunities and, and lived in a very different kind of, had a very different kind of upbringing from the girl in the story. And uh now like is now kind of at university in the states and you know very kind of highly educated um significant um uh significantly different story to this girl and i think what she's doing here is layering in those like some of those different perspectives and kind of asking us to to grapple with them and to and to show us um the different types of trauma and the different types of restrictions that are put on on women and girls Mm -hmm. yep yeah even if she's just thinking about is he holding her hand even if she's trying to define you know what the future looks like for her what femininity what her womanhood means there's still gross men around who are gonna never let her forget that she has a body that they want to put you know comment on Gross. Gross. So then we get to the very end of the story, Jen, um, where she goes to the Gandhi statue and she's with these group of people who are kind of forcing themselves to laugh. We've heard of them throughout the story, but she's there. And, um, you know, one of them, one of them notices the girl sitting by herself and invites her to join them. Guaranteed to make you happy. He says she reluctantly accepts. 
So she starts to fake this smile, laugh softly. Um, and then after that, she starts actually laughing. And a man turns to her when it's over. And he says, so young lady, are you happy now? She looks at the beads of sweat on his forehead, laughter lines around his mouth. Are you? She asks. And then it ends. Okay. Like I finished this story and I was like, wow, what an ending. I have no idea what that means. Besides like, are any of us happy or are we all yeah. forcing it? Like, think about the idea that, <laughs> that we have to force ourselves to laugh, to be happy. I'm about to get so existential and it's not going to make any sense. So <laughs> hold it, hold it back. <laughs> I'm like humanity. The most existential question of all. Yeah. Talk about macro to micro. <laughs> Excuse me. I was not here to be attacked by this short story that I thought had nothing to do with me and really does have nothing to do with me in most senses. But I mean, that's why we read short stories. That's the whole basis of our podcast is like the idea that these perspectives open up how we think about the world and at some point how we think about ourselves. So, Jen, why is the story, why do you think the story is important to read? Um, for the exact thing that you just <laughs> said. <laughs> um, yeah, I, got, I got nothing else after that. I, I, feel, I feel exactly the same. You know, I think the, the, the genius of this story is, is that switching perspectives and is making us question the small things, making us kind of understand the big things or you know, and at the same time, just pull us into this, this little world that she's, that she's constructed so completely that I could see it. I could smell it. I could taste it. It feels like a multi-sensory experience. Um, but she, she makes sure that we understand the context of this tiny world. And that's really powerful. And, I love that it made me want to find out more uh, and leaves us thinking of those bigger questions. Thanks for reading with me, Jen. Thanks for reading with me, Lizzie. The next story is Passage by Kevin Jared Hossein. You can find it on granta.com. You can find the links for all the stories at shortsthepodcast.com or by following Shorts the Podcast on Instagram or Twitter. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We'll see you next week.